I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. It's kind of seen as adequate or expected for existing homeowners to just come out and be angry about development near them. And then you've got this kind of tough slog then where the planner's like, oh gosh, we have to come up with a solution. You know, we had 20 people that hate this idea. We didn't have anybody come out in favor of it. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And so they end up doing it. And then, you know, everybody kind of feels like, gosh, you know, we're, we're forcing something on the community, but we still have to do something. And it goes to the planning commission, it goes to the city council. And, you know, sometimes it gets derailed at those levels. But what our simulation can do is it can make everybody feel like they're part of the solution. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Today, I chat with Chris Adams, president and founder of Balancing Act. Balancing Act is an innovative simulation tool for local governments to engage with their communities. The tool can be used in several ways, uh, initially used for budgeting, recently with housing, and in the future, enacting solutions for climate change. In the discussion, we'll touch on how it works, use cases, the benefits of governments co-designing with their communities, how the tool might be able to counteract NIMBYism, and we'll touch on some of those future uses for the tool. So I hope you'll stick around to the end and enjoy this very insightful conversation with Chris Adams. Chris. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure, Demetrius. You do uh, great work. I'm excited about this. Thank you. I'm um, looking forward to hearing more about Balancing Act. 
I happened to stumble upon you. I think it was a LinkedIn post that somebody liked. And uh, I think you're recently featured in Forbes and read through that article and loved the, the concept and wanted to make sure I, I brought it to our listeners' attention. So, Chris, I'll, I'll let you kind of set it up and, and give me a, a quick little synopsis of you, your background, and then a, a brief uh, one or two liner about Balancing Act. Sure. Just uh, quickly, it wasn't Forbes, but it was another magazine that begins with F. It was Fast Company. And we That's were both right. uh, featured That's right. in an cool. article about our work. And then we were also named uh, by Fast Company to its list of world-changing ideas for 2022. So uh, that was it's been nice to be associated with Fast Company. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Fast Company. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. There's also a really uh, terrific article in Governing. Uh, magazine, which is more for uh, public administrators and public officials. But anyway, you asked about who I am and and you know how we started the company. So I'm Chris Adams, and I'm the president and founder of Balancing Act. We began in 1998 as a face-to-face public policy facilitation firm, but in uh, 2007 we started doing simulations, uh, mostly for the budget that we uh, then uh, offered as a software as a service product to local governments. And then in 2020, uh, we were contacted independently by two different governments, one in California and one in Australia, that had seen our budget simulation and uh, saw that with some modifications that our simulation could be used to help with a very challenging issue of public engagement on housing issues, public participation and public input on housing. Can you kind of expand on what was the problem that you saw that sparked the creation of the software, the program? So the general problem is public engagement or public participation on housing is usually dominated by those who are most closely affected by it. And in particular, those who um, might live by proposed new housing. And so there's this, this irony where there's this widespread understanding among the population, I think, you know, 70 or 80% that housing, housing availability, housing affordability um, is a problem. But then when you get down to the task of actually building it and deciding where it should go, there's a lot of opposition. And the opposition typically comes from existing homeowners who um, don't want things to change in their neighborhood. They're, they might be for uh, more housing in general, but just not near them. And so both of these uh, planners, the one in Australia and the one in California, saw that Balancing Act uh, was a way to sort of reconstruct and reframe the problem in such a way that residents, instead of just coming out and participating in a very narrow and focused way about what they don't want, so existing homeowners come out when something comes about that might sort of change the way that they live, might add traffic, might change the character of the neighborhood, but a, a tool that instead framed it as, as a community, how should we solve this problem? And so the first city to use this was Elk Grove, California. And in California, there's a process where the state of California gives a goal to uh, each jurisdiction, each city or county, and says, okay, through your planning process, uh, you need to plan for X number of uh, housing units. Some of them are affordable, some of them are not. And so what our tool does is, is instead of just saying, hey, we're thinking about rezoning this area three blocks or six blocks from your house, it says this is what we need to do as a community. And then it provides options, places that could be changed, could be rezoned, uh, could be um, accommodated in the planning process for more housing. 
but then it also gives a goal. And that, that's really the key part is it gives the goal of the jurisdiction of the community and then asks people to show how they would meet that goal. And so it's perfectly fine for people to go in and participate using our simulation product and be against something, but they can't just be against it. They also have to say what they would do in order to meet the goal. And then in Australia, it was slightly different. It, they did have a numerical goal, but it was this uh, coastal part of Australia. Coastal areas are very intense in terms of land use. And uh, they had a goal of, of increasing housing units uh, via the planning process by a thousand. And yet they only had room for uh, uh, 30 new single family homes. And so what they used the tool for was to say, you know what, if we're going to meet our goal of a thousand, we can only meet 30 units of that 1000 through single family. And so what they, uh, they wanted their residents to do was realize that, okay, if we're going to meet this goal, it's going to be through duplexes and maybe small apartment buildings, maybe even a larger apartment building. Have you seen sort of firsthand experience that that opens uh, residents' eyes of understanding how to approach this problem and the realistic <laughs> uh, things that need to to happen to to reach those goals? Has it started to sway people clearly, or is it still in process? I think so, and uh, I wouldn't say that, that that our tool that the purpose of our tool is to sway people. It's to have them be realistic problem solvers. The part that where they might be swayed is to say, gosh, you know, if I, if I am one of these 80% or 70% that believe that housing should be more accessible, more affordable, that we need more housing, there, there, there's a role I have, which is to actually participate in solving that problem. And I think that's, that's a really valuable thing. And what we found from our clients, who are generally uh, the cities or the counties themselves, the planning department, is that by sharing the goal, which is a numerical goal, and then sharing the options and having the options have a number attached to them, that it really kind of changes the conversation because people become aware of what needs to happen to solve the problem. And I think that's a very valuable thing. And I think that planners and planners, especially in a lot of coastal areas or areas where um, housing is very expensive, I think planners feel like they've kind of been beat up uh, through the public participation process. And, and what this tool does is it says, don't beat me up, this is the reality. And, it, and if we are going to solve this problem, this is a pathway to get us there. And I think that they feel sort of you know, gratified because it's not just them trying to do something to the community. It's the community saying, okay, if we want housing, this is what we need to do. And it just kind of makes a different kind of a conversation that I think is very welcome among planners. Yeah. From a practical sense, can you kind of walk me through that process? Because you mentioned if you oppose it, you, you have to come back with a solution are the community um, members sort of forming groups to come to some agreement of what that other option would be, or each individual can use the software? How does, how does that work? Right. So typically what happens is that the city or often a planning consultant will set a version up for the city and it can be configured in a lot of different ways. It can be configured with a map and the map can um, you know, have zones in it. And you could say, I want to target you know, zone number three, you know, kind of north of downtown, something like that, for increased density. And then you can go to the simulation and you can, by clicking, you can then add density. And on the interactive map, it then shows up as being darker um, so that you can see where that density is going. Or it can be uh, that you have an area where you would propose to have new housing units put in. So not, not just density units per acre, but actually housing units. Um, or it can be actually be used at the site or the parcel level to say, you know, there's site C11, you know, 
uh, Elk Grove, then, you know, and you could say, I want to click on that. And then you could have a, a projected value of that as being, you know, 100 or 150 units. And so a resident would go in after the, the simulation has been set up and you can do it in a very simple way or you can do it in a more complex way with maps and density changes and, and so forth. But the, but the key is that is that you're putting the resident in the shoes of the decision maker, of the policymaker. And so they can go into the simulation and they can then click around and see what the options are and then ultimately come up with what combination of options they would choose in order to meet the numerical goal. Let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love most. This series will help. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, aims to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew his practice from a solo practitioner to a 30-plus person firm, then later sold his firm to do what he does today, help architects be more successful through Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth for years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Tiger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now. Through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. 
there's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. And now let's get back to the conversation. Are you finding that there's some sort of training that needs to happen amongst the community or is it fairly easy to utilize? Well, it, I'll say that there are some, some, some setups of the simulation are easier to use than others. And I mentioned density units per acre. So that's, that's a, a term that people, the professionals use. Um, I, when I first started uh, doing this, that was not a term that was familiar to me, although we had the simulation that could be adapted <laughs> for planning and housing. It wasn't something me as a resident uh, was familiar with. Yeah. Um, but sometimes there's, there's some terminology that, that is not clear, but depending on how you set it up, it can actually be very accessible. The, the one in Australia, the one in Sutherland Shire, Australia, was really easy to use and, you know, maybe five or eight minutes. The first one that we did in Elk Grove, California, was also very easy to use. What we've noticed is that some of our clients who have been using it with maps attached, that they actually will have a facilitated meeting um, where either face-to-face or uh, or online, where they'll kind of walk people through it. And I actually think that's that's very effective because the same types of people that would attend a meeting are, are some of the people that might have the strongest opposition. And so you can actually have a conversation with them. So what the, the simulation does is it just sort of frames the issue in a way that people can understand what the requirements of a solution are. And so I think I think it's actually sort of nice to do a hybrid. It's intended to be just usable simply by finding it, you know, to do whatever communications methods that the local government would have. And I think in, in the best cases, it should be something that's completely accessible, but there's different uh, options and permutations and uses for it. Yeah. We had an episode um, earlier this year where we talked about co-design and this is very much in line, I think, with that concept of collectively coming up with a, a direction or, or at least having that that feeling of collectively coming up with a solution yeah. uh, for a community. Are you finding that there's some sort of unity built in this process? Yeah, I would say so, because I think in the, the typical public participation process when it comes to housing, it's kind of seen as as adequate or expected for existing homeowners to just come out and be angry about development near them. <laughs> yeah. um, and it kind of stops there. And then you've got this kind of tough slog then where the planners like, oh, gosh, we have to, you know, we have to come up with a solution. You know, we had, you know, 20 people that hate this idea. We didn't have anybody come out in favor of it. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And so they end up doing it. And then, you know, everybody kind of feels like, gosh, you know, we're, we're forcing something on the community, but we still have to do something. And it goes to the planning commission. It goes to the city council. And, you know, sometimes it gets derailed at those levels. Yeah. But what our simulation can do is it, it, it can make everybody feel like they're part of the solution. 
And I'll tell you the, the biggest complaint that we've heard from residents about uh, our tool is that it doesn't allow people to only go in and be against something. It, it, it hmm. requires them to show how they would solve the problem. I think that experience of actually going through and, and helping to co-understand the problem and then co-create the solution, I think can be a really powerful way to, to move forward. I mean, one of the problems with public engagement and public participation, if it only includes the people that have the, the strongest feelings about an issue and not the broader public, is that you get a brittle solution. It, and then it can be derailed at, at numerous points. It can be derailed through the planning commission. It can be derailed through the city council. It can be derailed through zoning, through permitting. And so if you do have this broader understanding of what the problem is and what the possible solutions are, I think you'll have a, a solution that's much more likely to be uh, durable and hopefully move a lot more quickly through the process because a lot of communities really need to expand their housing supply. In your mind, what is the what is the phase of the project that this tool would be used? Probably most effectively used earlier in the process. The most cities have used our tool during the general plan update for their housing element. Um, and I think it works very effectively there. Um, we've had one community use it very, very early when it's just looking at types of housing, uh, whether it's you know single family, townhomes, small apartment buildings, that type of thing. I think that's also very useful because it's once again uh, saying to the public that we can't just solve this problem with single family homes if we actually want to meet our goal. And then I think one of the, the places that we're going with this uh, next is to have the tool be used um, sort of throughout the, the process, be used with zoning. Um, in some cases, there are some land use ordinances that have been voted by uh, voted in by voters. And so in some cases that might need to be amended or changed. And so having this, this tool for people to broadly understand why that ordinance might not have been wise or might not actually comply with state law, I think is, is a valuable thing. So I think mostly during the, the planning process, but also through the zoning process, but I think it can be used really almost at any point um, because there's always a challenge and always a problem uh, that planners and developers are working through. Yeah. When you take on a project, particularly like these um, master plan communities and things like that, it is tremendously expensive to go into the city with something that's already that you've decided can happen there. And then the the community is like, no, we don't want that. And then you have to redesign or lawyer up to try and argue your path through and all this other stuff. But I think laying out this much more detailed understanding of what the community agrees to to put there and to solve these the housing issue ahead of time it's a very much a much more clearly defined path that as a developer you can go into a project and know uh, that's what the community agrees on and you can uh, you can either pass or take on that project to to create what what they want and avoid a lot of those <laughs> hurdles that you can yeah. that you tend to run into yeah, no, I, I think that's probably a, a fair statement. I think we're probably less useful at the at the single development level. Um, I think yeah. we're much more useful. And, and there was uh, one of our clients actually said, he's a planner for a city, um, said is that he wants people to understand that that housing is really, uh, it's, it's a system. 
Um, it's not just you know one development after the after the other development or one site after the other site. And I think that that's probably where our tool has the most benefit is letting people see that that, that really it's it's not it's not just a one off. That, that really this is a, it's a community goal to have a accessible housing, and therefore at least at the at the highest level it needs to be a community solution. And then our expectation that we see from other high quality public engagement is that people, if they feel like they were a part of that. Uh, when it comes down to you know something that may not be their first choice or maybe a development that's near them uh, that the opposition will take on a different tenor uh, because they've been asked to actually think hmm. like a, a public administrator and not just like an angry homeowner yeah <laughs> yeah that's a that's a fantastic point and um i love the concept of this tool before we get out of here i did want to kind of back out a little bit because when you look at the website it mentions things about budget accountability. Uh, and then I see a, a little training video about using balancing act for coronavirus social distancing. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other ways the tool is used? Sure. I just want to make sure we don't miss any of those. Yeah, you bet. So, you know, as I said, we originally started our simulation tool for budget simulations. And we did that because budgets are really hard things for people to talk about uh, who are, if you're not a budget person. And uh, once again, a budget is, is a system. So if you're looking at expenditures, things that you know your city or your county could spend your tax dollars on, there's some trade-offs because you've got a variety of things that you might like to have and they've got a cost associated with them. And then you've got a limit because you only have uh, so much money to spend. And so we create a simulation so that uh, once again, elected officials and budget finance professionals and city and county managers would have a way to sort of share what you know is going on with the budget, what the expenditures are, how much things cost, and then to have people sort of level set that with the, the tax dollars that are available. And so the insight there was that for certain public policy issues uh, like budgets and like planning, simulations are a really powerful way to uh, engage the public and, and give them um, a place to sort of learn and provide input. We've also been using the tool with the you know the downturn from COVID certainly because a lot of budgets shrank uh, at least initially and then budgets you know got much larger because of the stimulus funds and the U.S. Treasury Department when it made uh, its allocations the ARPA funds the American uh, Rescue Plan Act uh, when those funds were made available to local governments the Treasury Department said this is a you know once in a generation opportunity to invest in your community and so you should be involving your community in thinking through what some of those trade offs are. Um, most recently, and this is a little bit connected to, um, I know some of the concerns that you all have, uh, we've been uh, developing the tool to use with climate action plans. And that's something that's very important to us because there's a, there are a lot of trade-offs in climate action plans as well. Um, and there's, you know, I think a, a need for the public to understand and learn that not all mitigation efforts uh, have the same projected impact. So for example, uh, we work with a city that uh, has a group of motivated community gardeners that really want to see community gardens become you know, a key component of a climate action plan for the city. And the city's perfectly fine with that, but the problem is that community gardens don't actually have anywhere near the mitigation effects as doing things in transportation and doing things uh, with, with building efficiencies. And what our tool does is it allows us to look at the various things that a city uh, can do and then to uh, to have a realistic conversation that takes into account the projected benefits in terms of reductions of CO2, for example, and then also to look at the costs associated with each one of those mitigations. So essentially what we're trying to do is our, our, our purpose right now is 
simulation-based public engagement tools for government to do uh, government public engagement that you know to the degree possible puts people in the shoes of policymakers as opposed to just criticizing from the outside I mean, we really do believe of you know, government for the people and by the people and and this is a way to actually bring people into being problem solvers and not just critics thank you so much chris i, I really love this um this tool and and what it could potentially bring to to a lot of different communities um I want to make sure that everyone knows you can check out more at abalancingact.com. Abalancingact.com. Thank you so much, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Demetrius. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, You can support us in three simple ways, for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.